Right, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Natalie, if we haven't met yet, and a very, very warm welcome this morning to you on our third Sunday of Advent, our second to last one of the year. Um, so if you've been around, you know that for the whole year, we've been in a series exploring together how we follow Christ with our whole lives, a, hol- a holy following Christ life. And we've talked about the life of prayer, a spiritful life, a compassionate life, a consecrated life, and a word-anchored life. And so if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, we've been very coincidentally in the incarnational life leading up to Christmas. How good was that? Um, And so Dan has taken us through kind of the big vision of that we are kind of continuing on and talking about the how. We're going to talk about how do we live this incarnate, flesh and blood life like Jesus did. So this morning, I invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture. And we're going to read together out of Luke 1, if you want to turn there. So Luke 1, verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Feel free to grab a seat. The incarnation starts with two women getting pregnant. Luke starts his gospel with the story of Elizabeth, who was a wonderful, faithful, older woman. But one of the hidden pains of her life was that she could never bear children and that she was now past the childbearing age. But one day, an angel called Gabriel appeared to her husband and said, you're gonna have a baby. And he didn't believe the angel, and so he couldn't speak until said baby arrived. And second, Luke tells the story of Mary, Elizabeth's cousin. Mary wasn't even married yet, and she certainly wasn't thinking about having children. When the angel appeared to her and said, you're gonna have a baby. And her quiet response was, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. These two very ordinary women start at the beginning of the great story of the incarnation. And have you ever thought about it like that? Have you ever thought of the Christmas story as a birth story? As in a woman giving birth to a baby? The flesh and blood gritty story of pregnancy, labor and birth. Well, I'm pregnant, surprise. And uh, so I've been reflecting a lot about birth recently and all that comes with it. And uh, we're having a little girl at the start of February um, and we're very excited, but I'm very much living Advent at the moment, which is I'm literally in a season of uncomfortable waiting. So, you know, not to compare myself to the mother of God, but uh, (laughs) I can relate. (laughs) 
only Mary had to learn this overwhelming, mysterious, and very real news that the Son of God, Emmanuel, was now growing in her body. And I have fancy apps that tell me every week uh, what is developing in baby. This week, baby's the size of a coconut, I hear, and I uh, feel like a mini elephant in Bali. (laughs) But Mary, a young Jewish girl from an obscure village called Nazareth, wouldn't have known any of that. She wouldn't have known about the placenta in her womb nourishing her boy. She wouldn't have known when his eyelids started fluttering or when he could start hearing her voice. But nevertheless, she embraced this very physical experience and she said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And for many of us, this Advent may be a time of great joy breaking into our sorrow like it was for Elizabeth. A time when for years we've cried out to God and he hasn't come through and we've almost given up hope when we received the great news God has broken in. The infertility is over for her. A child will be born. Or we might be like Mary coming into this Advent season. We want the Messiah, we want Jesus to come. But we didn't realise he would be like this. That it would involve our whole lives and our whole bodies. And if we're honest, we would have preferred it otherwise. Not through a baby in cloths out the back of an inn, We want God to break into our lives, but on our terms, don't we? But very early on in the story of the incarnation, we're faced with this reality that God hardly ever comes in the way that we want him to. But he comes, nonetheless. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the importance of worldviews. So the Greeks had this view of humanity that the sacred, the ordinary, the mystery and the certainty, the everyday and the sacred is opposites to each other. And to become more human, you kind of have to transcend from the bottom axis to the top axis, from the tactile to the spiritual. And we said that the Hebrews had a very different view of humanity. They saw it like this at the intersection of mystery and ordinary, of sacred and everyday, is our humanity. That both are equally important and that it is here that Christ becomes incarnate. It's here that he becomes the tactile temple, as we've talked about, that we can touch and see. Richard Foster writes this, Far from being evil, the physical is meant to be inhabited by the spiritual. We are created so as to receive life from God who is spirit and to express that life through our bodies and in the physical world in which we live. He's saying spiritual truths can only be experienced through our bodies because that's who we are, isn't it? We're humans with physical flesh and blood and hands and feet. And if we can't know God through our bodies, How can we know him at all? And that's where Jesus comes. Through the finite reality of a starry night in Bethlehem, through a gritty birth story. And so today I wanna talk about two dimensions and how they play out in our lives. How do we live this incarnational life at this intersection 
of the ordinary and the sacred. So, here is our roadmap for today. We're gonna start talking about the sacramental life. How does God become incarnate through the sacraments? And second, we're gonna talk about God and our ordinary lives. And our ordinary lives look quite different, don't they? So I'm gonna touch on three main areas of life. How most of us spend the majority of our days working with our hands, working with our minds, and working at home. So first, the sacramental life. This is the dimension of a life that you probably already think of as spiritual. These are practices that are holy and set apart for a particular purpose. And we do them around here, things like communion, baptism, confession, and marriage. And while the rest of the world goes about its business right at this moment, this is a time where we stop. We do something profoundly physical. We light a candle as a way to live into the spiritual reality that it represents. For example, when two people get married, this is a life as usual kind of moment for the rest of the world. 2 p.m., Saturday the 9th of December. But for the couple getting married, who are a witness, and all those who witness the wedding, this is a holy moment. It's a time set apart to do a bunch of very tangible things. They say vows, they exchange rings, they eat a meal together, they dance together, and they do other stuff. <laughs> it's one day <laughs> that'll forever be a holy day for that couple. Richard Foster defines sacraments as the concrete actions by which we are marked and fed in such a way that the reality of God becomes embedded in our body, mind, and spirit. Just read that again. Concrete actions by which the reality of God becomes embedded in our body, mind, and spirit. The sacraments, the things we do, aren't the point in themselves. Just like sound waves need a medium to travel through like air, we need a concrete action to help us experience and taste something of the reality with God. There is no sound in a vacuum, is there? Another example of this is baptism, something a lot of you might have experienced. When we physically go under the water and come back up, this is a sacred moment. It symbolizes that Christ are in us now, that we're part of the family of God, that we're made new. But it's not magic. We already know in our minds that we're new in Christ and we don't need the physical water to make that true. But knowing in our minds, like the Greeks believed, isn't enough. The job of the sacraments is to create holy moments that Jesus is born again, that he's made incarnate in us. It's the story of Mary over and over, holy moments where God enters the world through our physical flesh and blood bodies. And ask anyone who's been baptised in the middle of winter. It wouldn't have been the same to stand in this temperature-controlled room having a conversation about how we have been saved by Christ. No, God comes through a human body, not a mind. 
There's something holy about going under the ice cold water, emerging out, having someone laid hands on you and pray for you and through the shivers that you realise that Christ is born. Maybe you've grown up in a church where getting the sacraments right was the most important thing. I know for me, uh, in the church I grew up in, we were constantly having debates about adult baptism versus infant christening and uh, whether kids should be taking communion or not. And sure, these are conversations we could have, but there's a freedom to no longer see the sacraments as spells to be cast to correctly get them to work, but rather as symbols and physical means that we encounter God, Emmanuel. Where a baby is born once again in an inn. It's not perfect, it's not flesh, it's a teenage parent who has no idea what she's doing, but Jesus comes whether we expect him to or not. He comes nonetheless at the intersection of our sacred symbols and our physical participation with them. And so all of that to say, life with these beautiful sacraments is the beginning of our incarnational life, not the end. The second dimension where we live this incarnational life of Christ is everywhere else. Our ordinary lives, our families, our jobs, our daily coming and going. And in a sense here, we find the greatest question of the incarnational life is how? How do I follow Jesus on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? Our daily lives are made up of a million things to do, aren't they? We have to pick up the kids from daycare, go to work, go to study, or we're sitting at home staring at our newborn, hoping that she's gonna make it through the next nap time. And what we do with the majority of our days matters to God. The best scripture to anchor us here are Paul's words in Colossians 3 verse 17, saying, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To step into living the incarnational life is to see our daily work as the place where God is present in all of us. Don't you know, Paul reminds us, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not gonna romanticize it because we have to wrestle with this. Sure, our bodies are sacred temples, but yet there's so many places in life where it doesn't feel like it's holy spaces. Our Western dualist mindset splits our lives once again into spiritual moments and ordinary moments. And it's so hard for us to marry them together because we're so used to this. But this is where we need to throw out the divide between mind and matter and declare that we are not minds trapped in bodies. We are, like the Hebrews believed, a dynamic, holistic people fully human at this intersection of the sacred and the ordinary, like Christ was. Martin Luther wrote about this, saying that the plowboy in his plowing and the milkmaid in her milking are doing priestly work, sacred things, and so we see that life itself is the arena. And I love that so much. Life itself 
is the arena. And our arenas can look very different. Some of us work with our hands. Some of us work is mostly bits flipped back and forth on a computer. And yet for some of us, we don't feel represented in the concept of work at all. And that'll be me soon. Working at home, sure, but not working from home. So first, working with our hands. We often think about Jesus as a handsome, pale-skinned academic, a sophisticated man who taught in the synagogues. But really, we should remember that he was a dark-skinned Jewish man, his hands scarred with transforming raw wood into smooth furniture pieces. Jesus was a laborer, a carpenter. He didn't spend his whole day locked away in a study thinking about theology. He was a blue-collar worker. He knows sweat. He knows about feeling tired. Life itself was his arena. And so if you're a laborer or an electrician or a tradie, you work with your hands, Jesus' incarnation means that the work you do is important and it matters. Every brick laid, circuit connected or piece of plumbing matters because this is your arena. And the invitation of the incarnate carpenter Jesus is to awaken to this, to see your work as a physical way to encounter God. Brother Lawrence, you might have heard of him, he was a monk in the Carmelite monastery in Paris. And he had a very, very lonely, lowly position in the priory. He was mostly in the kitchen and then later on he got promoted to repairing sandals. And he said this, we must do our business faithfully without trouble or disquiet, recalling our mind to God mildly and with tranquility as often as we find it wandering from him. He also said that it is not necessary to have great things to do. I turn my little omelet in the pan for God. And this sounds similar, doesn't it, to what Paul says. And whatever you do, whatever, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's all one. The ancient artisans used to also carve the back of furniture, the part that no one saw. And they said that this was for the audience of one, that if only God sees it, that would be enough. So if you work with your hands, could you bring this awareness to your physical work? The awareness that somehow, mysteriously, the work you do is glorifying Christ that he is with us in the omelets we make, the concrete we lay, the labor we do. What will it look like to bring this awareness to your physical work, that you're doing it in and through and for the incarnate Christ? Maybe you have a job where you don't work with your hands at all. They are still nice and smooth, like me you sit in front of a computer all day. Maybe your mind is preoccupied from the moment where you get to work until the moment you leave, and you can't bring your mind to Christ back all the time. 
And this is where the good news comes in, that we are holistic beings, that you are not only a mind, that all of you are sitting at that desk on a Monday at 9 a.m., your soul, your being, your body, and your mind. And that your body is just as valuable and as useful as your mind. And there's a type of witness that can happen with God without you having to cognitively engage. Our bodies can pray. Scott McKnight called fasting body prayer. He says fasting is a way to pray without our minds. And there's a prayer group in this church that fasts and prays together every Wednesday. And every week there are words to pray for with our minds, but mostly it's body prayer. It's being with and petitioning God through the act of not eating. It's asking for spiritual realities to break in through our physical bodies. It's saying, God, let your kingdom come through my hunger. And so many times this year, God has come and been present in miraculous and unanticipated ways. Once again, we're reminded that Jesus doesn't come in the way we expect him to, but he does come nevertheless. And once again, we're invited to step into the birth story where our minds can't comprehend God, Emmanuel, being birthed through a human body, but he is. And we are, here we are. We can't comprehend how our fasting bodies matters, but it does. And Jesus comes anyway. I can't fast at the moment because sadly, my baby will not grow through body prayer alone. But Lutwig, my husband, uh, is part of the Wednesday fasting prayer group. And uh, some Wednesdays he comes home absolutely exhausted from meetings all day and no food and he didn't pray with his mind at all. But his body prayed. And sometimes he comes home full of life and with a deep awareness of the withness of God during the day. And God is incarnate in both. Thirdly, working at home, domestic life. Ronald Rollheiser is a wonderful but unmarried Catholic priest who wrote a book called The Domestic Monastery. Don't know how he got that past his publisher, but you know. Um, and along with other teachers, he encouraged us that if we want to grow in spiritual maturity, we have to spend at least an hour a day with God. And uh, he tells the story in the book of a mother at one of his conferences who challenged him on this. And she said, where would I ever find an uninterrupted hour each day? I would, I'm afraid, be praying with children screaming and tugging at my pant legs. And uh, Ronald Rollheiser, he looked at her for a long time and uh, he reflected that once upon a time he would have encouraged her that she of all people needed time alone, away from her kids, away from her family, to be with God. But this time, he said this. If you are home alone with children whose needs give you little uninterrupted time, then you don't need an hour of private prayer daily. Raising small children, if it is done with love and generosity, will do for you exactly what private prayer does. 
In the book, he goes further to tell of another great spiritual writer called Carlo Carrido, spending many years in the Sahara Desert in prayer. And uh, yet coming back, he confessed that he felt that his mother, who spent 30 years raising children, was more contemplative than he was and less selfish. And Rollheiser again reflects on this and he writes that the mother, and I'd add, let's just say, the parent, who stays at home with small children experiences a very real withdrawal from the world. Her existence is certainly monastic. Her tasks and preoccupations remove her from the centres of social life and from the centres of important power. Moreover, her constant contact with young children gives her a privileged opportunity to be in harmony with the mild and learn empathy and unselfishness. Perhaps even more so than the monk or the minister of the gospel, she is forced almost against her will to mature. For years, while she's raising small children, her time is not her own. Her needs need to be put into second place. And every time she turns around, some hand is reaching out, demanding something. Years of this will mature most anyone. It is because of this that she does not need during this time to pray for an hour a day. And it is precisely because of this that the rest of us who do not have constant contact with small children need to pray privately daily. Maybe a lot of you can relate to that. What Rollheiser is saying here is that if we are open to it, our daily lives can transform us and teach us. Domestic life can become a monastery. Incarnational living is above all a posture that we bring to each day. It's saying like Mary, I am the Lord's servant. God, here is my real life. Use it to make me more like you. In each interaction with a colleague or a client, in changing nappies or going to the park with a friend. It moves our focus from trying to get away from life to being open to the unexpected interruption of Christ. Because only through this posture we can allow each detail of our lives to help us become people of unconditional love. And that is the only point. It's the mystery and the certainty that God became human to show us out of love how to become people of love. And that doesn't take away at all from any of these other facets of following Christ. From having time for prayer and silence, for deeply engaging in the word or with the gifts of the spirit. It is in these set apart moments that we can deeply commune with God and we need them to wholly follow in Christ because Christ needed them. But the paradox is this, the more we engage in sacred moments, the more we become aware of the sacredness of ordinary life. The more I start my day in silence, the more I am aware of the deeper reality of Christ in me, with me, every moment of the day. The more I engage in the gifts of the Spirit, the more aware I am of the Spirit moving in a conversation with a friend. When I light a candle on Sunday, when I take communion, I'm all the more aware of the beauty of food on a Monday morning. 
the incarnational life means that our ordinary lives can be portals to meet God. And these other five facets with Christ just helps us deeply become more aware of them and that the door is always open. Finally, a note on our bodies. I want to acknowledge that talking about our physical lives and our physical bodies can be really hard for some of us. Maybe your body has disappointed you, whether that be through illness or infertility or something else. Maybe your body is a constant reminder of a trauma that happened to you many years ago and you wish it can forget, but you can't. And I want to remind you today that you don't need to fix your body before you can live incarnationally. In fact, pay attention to what it is trying to tell you and know that Christ's there in the midst of your disappointment, washing your feet. Pete Scazzaro, the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says that the body is a major prophet, not a minor one. So it's worth paying attention to what we feel in our bodies. They often know the state of our souls before we know in our minds that something's up. So notice, notice when your stomach gets knotted, when your neck is tight, when your hands clench up in a fist. What is your body trying to tell you that your mind hasn't quite figured out yet? Eloise Fraser, in her book, Confessions of a Beginning Theologian, says that my body, once ignored and despised, has become an ally in the reorientation of my internal and external life. It lets me know when I'm running away, avoiding yet another of God's invitations to look into my past and the way it binds me. I can't trust my mind as often as I trust my body. My mind tries to talk me into business as usual, but my body isn't fooled. Insomnia, intestinal pain and clenched fists let me know that there's work to be done. So to close today, and as we head into a time of summer break, I wanna invite you to take a look at your life. Have you split your church life or your spiritual life from your everyday life? Do you have expectations about when and where Christ will come in your world? Today, I want to remind you that Jesus did not come into the world as Israel expected him to. But he came, nonetheless, through the body of a scared teenage girl. And your everyday physical life is sacred. And we say that again, your everyday human physical life is sacred, whatever you do. Your work and job and kids and life. Are you aware of that? What will it look like to intentionally come back to your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, as a place where Jesus is born moment after moment? Maybe that is putting a reminder on your phone three times a day to stop, to breathe, to check in with your body. How are you feeling? 
Become aware of physical sensations you might have and pray the oldest of prayers. Come, Holy Spirit. Maybe it looks like getting a new journal for summer and at the end of the day, taking five minutes to write down when and where you saw and experienced Christ. Maybe it's committing to fasting together on Wednesdays and getting, giving body prayer a go, having your body pray where, you, where your mind cannot and letting the Holy Spirit shape you through hunger pangs. And maybe this summer you need to prioritise health again. Maybe life has gotten in the way of treating your body as a temple and Jesus is gently reminding you that this is also part of the spiritual life. So as we come to a close today, I want to invite you to stand up with me. Donald, if you want to come up. And the band, yep. And I invite you to close your eyes with me this morning and open your hands. And as we open our hands this morning, we open our hearts to you, God, as a physical sign to receive you. And I invite you to take a deep breath. The Hebrew word for Yahweh is said to be pronounced in a way that imitates breath. Yahweh. Yahweh. Become aware of God, Yahweh, being as close to you as the breath in your lungs where you are. Living, breathing, incarnate Christ with you at this moment. Pay attention to your body. What are you feeling here and now? And take another deep breath. Feel the air coming into your lungs. And as we stand with our physical bodies receiving Christ, we can breathe him in. And another way we can say, Christ, you are with us, is to sing that out and to declare it and to with our bodies, teach our minds and remind us over and over that Christ is with us. So we're gonna sing a song again together in response. May your love cause us to open up. And as we sing those words, I invite you to keep your hands open. Keep inviting Christ to come. Keep inviting Christ to open you up to a deeper and more incarnational experience with Him. With Him in your everyday life. With Him now with Him through word and deed and thought. May Your love cause us to open up.
is darkness, let me shine Shine